So we are in a emphasis on deeper, wider, higher, basically through the rest of the year, and we're in this first segment here on deeper, and we are looking deeper into some of the stories of the Bible. We looked at some from the Old Testament. Uh, we are looking at some now from the New Testament. And in several weeks, we'll move to that second section of looking at things a little bit wider than we normally look. So today, we want to take a look at a story I just read for you out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And when we look at this particular story, what we are going to see is not just a wedding parable, but I'm calling this message the wedding predicament. And I'm going to show you that in a moment. So when you come to the Bible, you need to have adult eyes. Sometimes when we have been in church, possibly for some people here, their entire lives, they've been told stories in the Bible at a kid's level through a kid's lens. And that's okay, because that's where people get some of the basic information about some of the things, including some of the stories of Jesus. But there comes a point when you look at these stories closely that you'll find there are sometimes things that don't add up. And today's story is one of those. And so you then need to kind of mature and take a look at these stories through adult eyes, asking adult questions, recognizing our confusion at times with some of the elements of the story and some of our curiosity about what's in the story as well. This story I read for you about the wedding banquet is a story that is not simply told, nor is it simply understood. Parables in and of themselves are a little bit perplexing. Now in the Gospel of Matthew, there are many parables that are told. And one of the reasons that they are told is that they seem to throw something of familiarity in front of people to compare what they know to the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Gospel of Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. Luke and Mark use the term the kingdom of God. They're synonymous. Um, what we find is that they are talking about the same thing. And what we find is that Matthew says that the kingdom of heaven is like dot, 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 these stories. Now, it's up to us to figure out where is the parallel? Is the parallel found in the people that are in there? Is it found in the actions of the story or both? And when we come at a parable with adult eyes, I think we begin to find ourselves growing up a little bit. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. So we kind of move back into stories, not with simplistic eyes, but rather sophistication of adults. Now here's the problem. I did not live in the first century. I don't understand first century context. 
And so when we look at stories, I can't look at this story through 21st century eyes. I have to look at them through the time Jesus told these stories. And I think when we do so, what we begin to see is the wedding party parable, a parable is a parable that meant something to those that heard it. Now some of it would some people would catch on to it right away. Others probably had to contemplate on that a little bit more. Now remember I began the service with this uh, verse from the Apostle Paul in Romans 14. He says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's a good working definition. So we come to this story and we ask, how is this story like the kingdom of God? And how is it not like the kingdom of God? You have to look at a story from both sides. Okay? So let's come to this story again recognizing that all of us here uh, are people that grew up in this country, United States of America. We grew up either as uh, a male or female. Uh, Some of us uh, grew up in a typical kind of middle-class suburban type of setting. Others might have grown up in other settings. With that in mind, when we hear a story from Jesus, we often have to double check our initial reading because we often bring all of who we are into the story. And we should do that. And yet, it will cause me to miss something by looking only through that lens. So when we come to this strange story of Jesus, we first have to consider the context. So let's move ahead here. In Matthew's Gospels, most of the parables explain how the kingdom of heaven interacts with the kingdoms of earth. Okay? So this is the way God and his kingdom works out his will. In, and now remember, this isn't after we die in heaven. It's just a phrase, kingdom of heaven, to talk about how life should work. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Okay, so that's the idea. God's uh, domain. So in these parables, it's, it begins usually. The kingdom of heaven is like. So how is this parable about the wedding guests and then the man who shows up without wedding attire and is thrown out onto the street by the wedding bouncer, how is that like the kingdom of God? Or how is it not like the kingdom of God? Well, in context here, it sounds to me like the king in the parable is like the godfather. Okay? He is an individual like Marlon Brando here that says, you know, I have an offer you can't refuse. Right? Is that the way we are to take this parable? Is the kingdom of heaven like a godfather who is making an offer you can't refuse, and if you say no to it, you're going to suffer the consequences because you ticked off this very powerful person? Well, what makes this parable very difficult is the king in the story is quite violent, isn't he? The king in the story is someone that is going to be enraged His anger is out of control, and he is going to punish those who first refuse the invitation to come to the party, 
and to the man who showed up without the proper attire, he is going to be cast out on the street. Now, is that what the kingdom of God is like? There is a tendency in the parables that every time you see the image of a king, you naturally associate that with God, right? God is the ultimate king of kings. But is that what we should do with this parable here? Or should we recognize that maybe God is not the king in this parable? Maybe somebody else is the king. So the Godfather enforces his will upon people. Now, is the kingdom of God like enforcing its will upon people? Or do we have a free will? Can we push back? Do we have choice? So that's something we have to kind of keep in the back of our mind. The other thing that we must keep in mind about the context is the fact that maybe, just maybe, God's not like the king in the parable at all. Because we see the image of a king and his son, we immediately, knee-jerk, right, say, oh, that's God the Father, that's God the Son. But you see the predicament you get in. The predicament you get in is this really reflective of what God is really like. Now, there are some individuals who will say, yeah, that's exactly what God is like, and that if you um, reject him, if you push back on him, he's going to punish you. And you're going to suffer the consequences of it. Well, let's hold off for a second here. What if the king in the parable is not God? What if the king in the parable is actually the king that is in charge of all the people hearing this parable? Maybe that king is exactly like the story. Now, who would that king be? It's the Roman Empire. And it's Caesar. It's such unlike God, how they enforce their will. Now, have you noticed down through history, if you are a history buff at all, people that assume power many times will then turn that power against the very people that have elected them. Or they will turn that power against people to enforce them to do their will. Every society has certain enforced behavior. Every society has authority that's thrust upon them, and if you buck against it, you're going to suffer the consequences of it. If you say, no, I'm not going to cooperate with that, well, you've just entered the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because you know punishment is coming. So, we all know that in our world and in the norms of our world, there are some very just and fair laws, right? Okay? And then there's some that are unjust laws as well. Maybe this is talking about Caesar and the unjust laws that Rome placed upon its inhabitants. Maybe, just maybe, Rome is acting like God 
and Rome is acting like the king in the parable. And the king in this story is saying, you better tow the line. If you don't tow the line, you're going to suffer the consequences. Now, the context is told in Matthew 22. In Matthew chapter 21, we know this story where Matthew places it is right at the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. So in Matthew chapter 21, it's Palm Sunday, or what we refer to as Palm Sunday. He comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And he knows that this image of him riding into Jerusalem and the people saying, Hosanna, people wanting to make him king is going to upset who? The Roman authorities, right? So later in the week, you have religious authorities and you have political authorities that are going to cooperate to put Jesus on the cross. Okay, So this story here is told at the beginning of that week. And what we find is that Jesus is going to be like the son, not the son of the king, but like the individual rather, who has been cast out, who has been um, condemned, the one who's going to suffer the consequences. So here we have a conventional reading. A conventional reading, God the King, the Son Jesus, you better obey or God's out to get you. But another angle is the parable is told in the last week of Christ's life, the improperly dressed individual is making a statement. He probably knows, because he knows the norms, that if he shows up improperly dressed, then he is going to be kicked out and he shows up anyways every other wedding guest bowed the knee to the king they gave up their own individuality and even their freedom to be accepted into this wedding banquet now the fate of Jesus is going to be sealed when he does not bow to the authority of the religious leaders so Jesus does several things in his three-year ministry, he cleanses the temple. You remember that story where he overturns the uh, tables of market in the temple? He's an individual that at times will um, contradict their established interpretation of the law from the Old Testament. There are other times where he will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, there's other times when people get real uptight with him because he would heal someone on the Sabbath. Uh, he would do things that were unconventional, outside the norm of the Jewish established religion at the time. And so the religious leaders who want to keep their power, the religious leaders who want to keep uh, the money that's associated with their positions, they begin to figure out a way to get rid of Jesus. Now, with that in mind, maybe this statement in the parable is a statement about what empire does to kill Jesus to make sure the establishment stays the same. 
They don't want things to change. The rulers don't want things to change. They have power. The religious leaders don't want things to change. They have power as well. So what if the kingdom of heaven is like a person who says, I know this is going to get me into problems. But I'm opting out of that system that forces me and controls me so that they can get their way. What if that is what this is all about? What if the person in the parable that reflects Jesus is the man who is the wedding crasher? The one who comes in and does not follow the accepted norms. You know, if God is the king in this parable, then all I can say is this. God sure has a fragile ego, doesn't he? If God gets angry and violent because he doesn't always get his way, then that's not a very good statement about what God is really like, right? And you and I and every other person (laughs) are in deep weeds. Because there will be times that we'll get God angry because we're not perfect and we make mistakes and we hurt other people and so forth. And what if God is not like the king in the parable at all? What if we really believe to our depths of heart that God really is love and Jesus came to reveal that God is like Jesus? What if Jesus was willing to push back on the systems that didn't want the people to believe that. What if Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of God is sort of like that man who opts out of judging other people, using other people for their own ego? Oh. All of a sudden, that has application to those of us in the 21st century, doesn't it? Because we all sometimes act in ways to enforce other people to stroke our egos. To do what we want. We're all guilty. We're all guilty of that. Right? And what if the kingdom of God is not meat and drink or other standard norms of society, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? What if that's really what the kingdom of God is like? Then how do we apply it. Well, maybe this parable is a parable of contrast. And maybe the parable is contrasting the actions of the king with the kingdom of heaven. So God is not really a victimizer. And on the cross, we see Jesus destroying the Godfather image. All right? He hangs on the cross. And what does he say? Father, forgive them For they do not know what they're doing. Right? We see God is not demanding that we toe the line to be accepted. If that is true, there's no such thing as grace, is there? Right? And maybe we are accepted by God even when we are not accepted by other people, especially religious people. This church now over the last several years, has been a place where we try to emphasize human equality. 
And there are religious people that don't like that. Because you always have to have a scapegoat of some sort. You always have to blame the problems of life on someone. And maybe this parable is telling us to be who God has made us to be. He loves us as he's created us. And maybe he's telling us that we need to accept each other the way he accepts us. We are not called to demand other people to toe the line to get our acceptance or our approval. Maybe we really do believe that grace is real. Maybe we really do believe that the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And how can I bring that to other people throughout the course of the week, whatever my week looks like? So I often tell you I listen to a lot of podcasts in the car when I'm driving, and one that I don't miss, every week I listen to the Bible for Normal People podcast. Pete Enns and Jared Bias are the ones that lead the discussions, and they have a lot of great guests on. Um, But occasionally they will do an individual podcast, and this past week Jared Bias was telling his story. He grew up in a Pentecostal church and then later moved to a Baptist church, and, and then he began to realize that the two systems uh, were trying to control a lot of who he was. And so I want to read to you, and it's going to take me a couple minutes to do so, uh, what he said on the podcast. So this is Jared Bias and his words. He says, when I talk about my faith community over the years, I think I have two responses. And it really goes to a bit of the core of who I am, which is being a kid who was very sensitive and probably very emotional. And then being the grown-up who had learned how to shut that off out of self-defense. And so the knee-jerk response for me is that I value community, but it's not that important to me because I don't know, I don't need it. But I think probably the deeper answer is, there's a reason I keep coming back to it. There's a reason that it has become something that I, whether I emotionally identify with it as a need and something I really want, the reality is that I've always been a part of it. And so the data betrays my emotions around it. And I think what it is, honestly, is I long to belong to a group but I'm always terrified of being rejected by that group. And my faith journey has confirmed many, many times that I will be rejected by that group if I don't toe the line a certain way. And my personality is terrible for towing the line. So I have have to choose between being true to myself and how I really feel and how I want to express myself or belonging. And I've always chosen being true to myself at the detriment, I think, of a lot of my feelings of being excluded. I do think there's a habit we're not even aware of in our church communities, that we only show up as a part of ourselves, because we pick up on implicit clues, that if I bring this part of myself, it will not be accepted. And I'm terrified of being rejected completely. So I would rather just preempt that and shut off this part of myself and only bring that part of myself, whether it's a personality trait or a certain belief or a certain question. And I think for me, 
fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, I've never been that good at that. The honest truth is, what I was good at was being a chameleon. Who I was was the person who could show up to a room and be whatever anybody needed me to be. And that's probably why I got to be a leader early and why I got to be a pastor early is because I was very good at reading the room immediately and knowing how to bring myself and the parts of me that I wasn't bringing. I didn't feel that strongly about it. So it was easy for me to hold that back. The leaders and guides in my lives who helped that to change for me were my LGBTQ friends who had showed me the definition of courage to say that this is too important of a part of me to hold back and I know to bring it fully in this space will be pain and it will hurt and it will be rejection. And I always had that in me, but I think I was maybe too afraid to do that. And so my queer friends helped me, like, oh my gosh, just to reflect on their experiences and how to say, and to say how courageous you have to be to say, it's not worth it to show up as me. I mean, excuse me, it's worth it to show up as me knowing this was going to be the consequence. And that inspired me to start showing up more fully in spaces as I was, as I am. And it also helped me to go into it with my eyes wide open to realize we have to count the cost. Because there is a cost to showing up as ourselves in culture at large, but probably much more in conservative Christian spaces. And when you don't ever bring yourself into a space, it's always like, oh, I don't know, maybe I'm just manipulating everyone to think I'm a good person. And so to come out with a lot more confidence, it's like, no, I trust myself. Like, I generally just want to love people, and I want to do things the right way, and I want to trust, and I will make mistakes, but my intentions are there. And if I can keep showing up in that way, then I feel good about that. So it started me on a journey of where I am, now where I trust that, and, and now where I trust that what I want in life is to love people well. And so if I can trust my own sort of North Star on that, then I can come out of every situation feeling like I did my part. I did what I could do. That doesn't mean it comes out with people liking me or I get to belong to every space, but I trust that I'll be in the spaces I need to be in if I can show up as myself. And that's a place where I'm accepted. This is probably just a function of age as I get older. I just don't have the time to be in spaces where I can't be myself. I thought that was very good. And I think that's part of what this parable is illustrating. Jesus shows up with a better vision of God. And we need that desperately, don't we? We need a better vision of God than what we're often told by religious communities. And I'm going to tell you as I close that the kingdom of God is at hand Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We can step into it at any moment. You see, God always moved humanity towards something that is more just and compassionate because it is the fuller revelation of who he is than any given moment in a historical context where people have all their baggage, all their junk in the trunk, if you will. And so we have to look at stories like this 
and be able to break into it, being ourselves, accepting grace, and attempting to love other people well. Jesus said, hey, the commandments boil down to this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything, all the law, all the prophets, all the writings is built on this. Love God and love your neighbor. So there was one dissident, Russian dissident, uh, novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn that said this, the simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. One word of truth outweighs the world. Very deep thinker, philosopher. He's an individual, I think, that was trying to tell us that at times when you know it's right, you've got to push back on the accepted norms, no matter the consequences of it. So occasionally, there are things that pop up that I listen to that, that illustrate this. And I want to show you a song. Uh, this was done in 2021 of an old Bob Dylan song. And it's Brandy Carlisle teamed up with Pearl Jam. Oh, that's an interesting combination, okay? They're singing the words, um, the times they are a-changing. And this is part of a website called Playing for Change, where different artists come out with songs, and they're trying to help change society to be more just and loving, compassionate. The things that we sang about out of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal one, what is good. Here's what the Lord requires of all of us, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I hope you enjoy this. I think it's a, per, uh, a perfect way to end our time together. Let, let's watch. Hey, I'm Brandi Carlisle. We're going to play Bob Dylan's The Times Are Changing. This song was a gift to the world in 1964. And the irony in a song about change being as relevant 56 years down the road as the day it was written isn't lost on us. But we believe change is still possible. So tonight, we're here to support the UN's 75th anniversary, and we're here in support of its mission to attain true social justice around the world. We're playing for change. Come gather round, people, wherever you roam. And admit that the waters around you have grown Accept it this soon, you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times, they are a change all you writers and critics who prophesize with your pen Hey, keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin and there's no telling who that it's naming For the loser right now might be littered with 
congressman, please heed the call. Don't you stand in your doorway, don't lock up the hall. For he who gets hurt will be he who has stalled. That's raging We'll soon be rattling your windows And shaking your walls For the times they are changing All you mothers and fathers From across the land Hey, don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters Are beyond your command And your old road is rapidly aging Come on, get out of the new one If you cannot lend your hand The times, they are a particular song was written by Bob Dylan in 1964, and it was on the edge of the push for civil rights in our country, where an entire group of people had been downtrodden in the history of this country for many, many years. And the times were changing then because people were stepping out and stepping in to moments where they could say, this isn't just. And, you know, if we can go back to Solzhenitsyn for a second here. There's always been individuals that's able to say, I'm going to stand for what's right, that have made a difference. And it's in those moments the kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdoms of men. Not by coercion, not by political power, not by money, not by policies that try to segregate and, and uh, hurt certain groups of people, but to love people genuinely, deeply, 
and to do so because that's what best reflects the heart of God. Stand with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to this moment where we think about the teachings of Jesus, this parable was one that was very poignant if we can think about it beyond the surface of the storyline. Help us to see how he was an individual that stepped into the moment to love tax collectors and sinners and others that society rejected. And help us to do the same, to follow in his footsteps. And there will be times that we're like Peter and there will be times that we'll open our mouth and say stupid things. And there will be times that we'll be like the other disciples that quivered and ran away. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand in every moment of every day if we'll do the right things. Give us the courage to do that. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. We'll see you again soon, okay?